everyone, and welcome to the Frogcast. Jeff Mitchell here. I've got Jeremy Clark and Daniel Southern. We are excited to dig in to our ongoing series of comparing teams from the past. Some of them have been great, some of them not so great. We're going to talk about 2009 versus 2015. we got a few other things to lead into it, and we're going to close out with Tiger King. That and a whole lot more on this episode of the Frogcast. Daniel, you are in Alito, Jeremy. You are in Azel, and I am in Memphis. I think that's appropriate social distancing. How are the two of you all handling this uh, this quarantine? I hate it. <laughs> I'm doing fine. I mean, I'm used to working from home. Um, the wife's working from home now. My kids are getting a little bit of cabin fever. My son, 12, 12-year-old Brody, he's kind of confused to the fact that he can't go over to friends' houses and no one can come over here. It's kind of driving them nuts. So usually in this neighborhood I had where we live, it's a pretty big neighborhood and I've kind of just kept him confined to one little area when he's riding his four wheeler, but I've had to expand the whole neighborhood just so he can get out of my hair for at least 20 to 30 minutes at a time. And this morning he decided he wanted to run the block. So it's looking up in that department, but other than that, it's it's uh, it's been going good, man. For you know, I'm blessed and fortunate enough to still be working and still getting a paycheck. Well, I'm I'm in the same spot, only for the second straight Sunday, I preached to an empty room and streamed it online. So nobody laughed, but they don't laugh when they, nobody laughed at my jokes, but nobody laughs when they're all there. So <laughs> it's, it's just fine. All right, let's hit some topics here before we get into the twenty. 2009 versus a 2015 team. Uh, Jeremy, let's go right out of the gate. Where are we at on some NCAA rules? We talked about that last week, but it seems as if there's some some breaking news and some updates in terms of senior eligibility from guys that should have been playing baseball and, and other sports right now. Uh, where, where, where are we at? Have you got any update on that for us? Well, it looks like it came down today that they're going to give those seniors and, and really everyone another year of eligibility, which is a good thing. But it's only for spring sports. Uh, you're looking at baseball, track and field, softball for the universities that have that. The bad news uh, for some of these sports, basketball, men's basketball, we knew TCU was done. Uh, they, they had a chance to go to NIT, but the ones you feel really sorry for was the girls' team, the women's team, because they were going to make it to the tournament. Those sports, do not they, they did not give another year of eligibility to, so really those seniors – basically had to leave with uh, finishing second in the Big 12 and just thinking about what could have been if they made it to the tournament. But the NCAA got it right in regards. I think when everyone was looking at it, you couldn't just give another year to the seniors because I think when we talked about uh, about it on here last time, Jeff, when I was telling you about, hey, what about those juniors that won't get another year of eligibility and they have to go in and compete with the senior that's coming back? And what about the ramifications for the the incoming high school recruits that got to wait another year or two to get on the field? I mean, everyone's got to compete for a position. That's where we're at in college sports. But it matters. Those things matter in in scholarships and and money for those scholarships. All those things matter. And I think that's what was part of the decision and why it took a little bit longer than people expected. But I think the NCAA got it right. Um, they, They needed to do this. Again, you feel sorry for the winter sports, but those those uh, student athletes got to at least play some games for baseball and softball, track and field, looking at baseball. I mean, they didn't get to play very many games at all. Uh, the people I feel sorry for right now, we look at college seniors and them having a chance to go back and, and get a year extra year of eligibility. What about the high school seniors, man? Can you imagine just – you're a football player, Jeff. If if we were in our senior years of high school and they're coming to us and telling us you can't play, that's devastating, man. That is devastating. And, and for some kids, for some, for some kids, baseball is their football. Baseball is their basketball. And a lot of these kids, they're just up in limbo right now. I, I know my buddy lives in Oklahoma. They've canceled everything. Schools, sports, they're done. Like they're they're done with school and everything. Texas UIL still has May 4th, but I don't know, man. I think it's going to go beyond that, and I think a lot of these kids are not going to get to play. Yeah, I feel bad for those kids. Those high school seniors, 
I got a kid at my church that great catcher on his high school baseball team. And, you know, his season's done and he's been waiting for this senior year all his life. And, you know, he's been the starting catcher for a couple of years, but this was his year to really, you know, try to get all conference, be able to take his team into the state, you know, deep, deep run in the state tournament, but it's not going to happen. So I, I agree with you there. That's a difficult spot for them to be in. But to come back to the original point, I think the NCAA got it right. So it's difficult. You know, if you if you change one thing, you feel like you got to change a lot more. But they're making the one change that matters, which is the kids that were robbed of their entire senior year of these sports are going to get another chance to do it. And hopefully that'll be good for TCU baseball because they were in a really strong spot before um, before um, the ninth chapter of Revelation began to unfold on us. Um all right, let's go ahead and move to a story you wrote this week. Uh, players, how are they training with Coach Patterson? You got some insight from Coach Patterson about what what the players are doing now, and maybe more importantly, how much lead time do they need to on-ramp in order to actually have a successful and healthy camp to prepare them for uh, what we hope happens, is, which is a regular season starting in right. September, uh, September out in Berkeley on the first weekend in, in September. That's that's a huge question mark right now. I mean, that's, I don't know how anyone can really, because I've seen all these dates, even with our stinking peewee baseball, everyone's thinking, okay, we're shooting for this date. I don't think anyone can really solidify a date right now to when, when all this is going to clear up and you get some normalcy out of a lot of this. But uh, Drew Davison and I had a chance to conference in coach Patterson last week and, it's it's crazy because they don't have people I've spoken with. There's there's a few kids on campus, few players uh, that didn't have anywhere else to go, so they're they're staying in the dorms, but they're not allowed to really use the football facilities. They're not allowed to use the gym. Uh, I don't even think you can get into Amon Carter Stadium right now, to be honest with you. But there is some accountability. Each one of those assistant coaches are calling their respective position groups and checking up with them every morning. There's an 830 wake up call and they're making sure they're getting logged into classes. This is new for TCU. As you guys know, TCU never had online classes before solely just online classes. And uh, that's one thing coach Patterson was talking about how quickly everyone in administration and the academic center got all this rolling for them to get, be able to do this and, and, and really take classes from home. The training part is, he didn't get into specifics about what they're doing. Uh, I think kids are kind of having to create their own ways to stay in shape. Uh, I know a few kids are training at home because they've got great facility, you know, great weights at home, not a facility, but actually there's, there's, there's uh, a couple guys that I know have, have pretty good gyms to go to that are privately owned. So they, it's basically at a house so they, they can get into that and do a workout. But other than that, it's really just about making sure all these kids are getting their stuff done academically uh, and and really just not getting completely lazy and just and just trying to keep track of them. I mean, it's it's kind of like when they leave for spring break or they leave for for uh, you really don't want to say Christmas break because they've only missed a bowl game three times in Gary's tenure. So it's it's not really not really common for them to have their their athletes be gone for this long. Um, but you hope that somehow, some way that they get to return to in-person activities, hopefully by the end of summer, like I said, no one can for sure have a date when that's, when that's possible. I know Bob Bowlesby and the big 12 announced uh, late last night that they weren't going to allow any kind of in-person activities until May 31st. The crazy thing about it was they're only allowing, I think, two hours of video a week, which that seems very minimal at the time. I think they need to – me personally, I think it needs to be eight hours a week where they can visit with the visit with the kids and do video conferencing, whatever. But when talking, uh, talking to Coach last week about everything and everyone, the big question is, is are they going to start the season on time? Are they going to get everything rolling in September? Are they going to be able to start – uh, practice in August. Coach Patterson said, and this, this was a great point. I didn't, I didn't really think about it much till we hung up the phone, but if they don't get started by early June, Jeff, you're looking at 
them potentially pushing the season back a little bit. And how far back do you push this? Because if you listen to the experts with the coronavirus, where, where is it most commonly that's known where it's going to spread it, it, when it's cold, right? In the fall, it gets cold in the fall. So there's there's big questions about that. But, but Coach said you need eight to nine weeks to get your kids ready for, for a camp. You can't just throw them in there. There's no way you can just throw them in there. If you look at when they do spring camp, you get those kids on campus in January. They usually enroll the first week of January, about a week before all the other students show up. They work out eight to nine weeks, and then they go into spring ball. Because if they don't do that, they're more susceptible to getting hurt, being out of shape. When you're out of shape, what happens? You get hurt. So that's one thing for him is that he's pretty much in favor of if they have if they are allowed to do anything – let them at least do helmets and shorts in June to where they're not hitting, but they're still able to do some of these activities and be able to go into the gym, work out, do everything else. But it's it's one of those deals where it's still so much up in the air right now. Yeah, anybody that tells you a hard date is lying. Nobody knows what, what, what any date is and um, – you know, think things are just on hold. But I, I think Coach Patterson's got a great point there that you need eight or nine weeks of just training in order to get ready for coming in to, for contact. You know, you mentioned this last week on our podcast. The guys I feel the worst for are those senior are those kids that left high school early. Yeah, I mean, they wouldn't have had a high school senior experience anyway. But they they came to college early, and now they don't they they didn't get the full benefit of that. You know, I do want to give a shout out to uh, the university. Uh, Chancellor Bashimi posted a, a video this week that TCU has set a date. I believe it's August eighth where they are going to have commencement. So commencement has been canceled. And they talked about, you know, just mailing your diploma out or doing some kind of virtual commencement. But they're going to bring everybody back that wants to walk and give them a chance to walk. So I thought that that was a, a pretty pretty neat uh, gift that the university is giving to those seniors because, man, you talk about an accomplishment of all the money and hours mom and dad poured into that and all the work it takes to get a degree from TCU. I really want to kind of give a shout out to Chancellor Bashimi and all of his team for setting up that date in, in, in late in early August for everybody to come back and, and get the full experience of graduating from TCU. I thought that was pretty well done. Yeah, that's awesome for them to do that. Hopefully, hopefully everything works out. Yeah. All right. Let's let's shift to recruiting here real quick. Um, a couple of offers that went out this week. The frogs are kind of spreading their uh, net, you know, you know, kind of uh, spreading things out nationally. One I want to start with uh, Marquise Irving at a Hillcrest High School in Country Club Hills. That's Chicago. That's the far south suburbs of Chicago. Your neck of the woods. Isn't that where My you live? I did. I roughed a football game there one time. Hillcrest, it was about an hour from where I live. But, yeah, I know that area pretty well. Hillcrest, is really, it's a, it's, a, it's a nice part of town. So, um, That's they, what I'm they, saying. Didn't you live there? Did, I did not you? live there. I did oh, not. Okay, okay. I could not afford to live in that area. No. I am not. I'm not Joel Osteen or Ed Young or uh, – Copeland. You know, I don't have the big dollars like they do. You know, did, you, did you know that – we've never talked about Kenneth Copeland before, how close his – his uh, facility is to Azel. Oh, you you don't know how close I came to becoming the pastor at that church. Really? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> say, let's go ahead and end tonight's podcast. No. I'm no. Sorry. All right. Um, back on track. Uh, okay, Martin let's get on track here. That's all right. Um, you know, I, I do not have a private jet. I do not have a private jet. So, and I have suspended worship services because um, we need to stay healthy. So, Marquise Irving, that's a really good offer. That's a really strong program. So, I'm curious to see where the Frogs are going to be in his recruitment. He is the number three player in the state of Illinois, number 13 running back in the country. Not that big, 5'10, 175. We'll see how things unfold for his recruitment, but that's a really strong offer into a good program. A um, couple other guys, uh, Jeremy, you've covered this. We got the guy in Spearman, we got the offensive lineman in Georgia. Give us an update on their recruitment and their offers went out in this last week uh Jakiah left which is the offensive lineman out of Atlanta uh and, and that was a kid that he told me TC's been looking at him since November he's had communications with them and it was good for them to offer uh it's right now I think it's the sixth offensive tackle they've offered and 
a lot of those kids are, are out of state kids and it's, it's kind of getting to the point where I think they're just going to start throwing their name in the hat for as many kids as they can, just to see if they can get one or two. I, I figured by now, Jacoby Jackson might've made a decision and his recruitment just keeps picking up uh, more steam uh, with his dad being a former frog. It, it kind of surprises me. And, and Jacoby is one of those kids I always thought was, was extreme. He's extremely high on TCU, but I, I always figured he would try to commit by now, but uh, Jakai is a, a pretty good prospect. I, I like him. He's got great size, 6'6", 302 pounds. Uh, he doesn't know much about TCU, wants to try to visit. And that's the crazy thing about all this because you just don't know when these kids are going to be able to get out and and see these campuses. And we talked about it last podcast where they've got to do something with that recruiting calendar and see what kind of changes they can make just for some of these kids to get out and see some of these schools. But uh, he's he's definitely a kid to keep an eye on. Uh, right now, I think South Carolina's got a crystal ball. He's last visit he went to was Florida State in January, so he he doesn't have a lot of visits under his belt, and it kind of surprises me. But I asked him because he he's got a July nineteenth commitment date, and he told me he's going to commit on that date no matter what. So it's it's kind of going to be down to whether or not he's going to be able to visit TCU uh, if they lift these restrictions, whether or not TCU's going to have a chance to get him. But he did say if if he's able to visit, he'd definitely like to come down. Uh, today they offered, after they offered Irving, they offered uh, the kid out of Spearman, Texas, little bitty Spearman, Texas. Have you ever been up in the Texas panhandle, Oklahoma panhandle? You've probably driven through uh, Spearman. It's not very big, but uh, Brennan Thompson – 2022 prospect is probably one of the fastest kids in the state, regardless of classification. I mean, he he's uh, timed a 10.1800 meter wind dated. Uh, he's probably a consistent 10.3 as a sophomore. Um, it was it was funny tonight when I was talking to him. I, I asked him when you tweeted that video of you running the hundred is this when all the interest started pouring in? He's like, absolutely. It, it's, it's when it all changed. People started reaching out. They were asking to be about my film and everything else. And he, he says for him coming from a small town, it's kind of overwhelming just because he's only a sophomore. He didn't expect to get this kind of interest. SMU offered earlier today. He has a, a Baylor offer. More schools are going to come in. Texas Tech's probably going to be the next school to offer. He said Texas Tech's been showing a lot of interest lately, but it, this this kid ended up being a top 247 player for us on our initial uh, top 247 uh, 247 ranking. So it it is one of those players that he's he's definitely going to get a ton of attention. And, and the good news for TCU is that he always watched TCU growing up. He, he doesn't know what he likes about him; just knew that he liked him. That's exactly what he told me. He says, "I just always liked watching them." Uh, that sounds like a frog factor to me. Yeah, you you know what that and Bart Johnson told me he said frog factor is real. So is. I mean it's it's a real thing, and uh, you know it's 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 good to see them getting on this prospect pretty early because it was one of those players where you've seen him. He you can obviously see how fast he is on his on his hundred meter. He leaves everyone so far behind and then you watch his film and it's it's just he's so much faster than every kid on the field he's playing against smaller competition and he's doing exactly what he should be doing and he's he reminds me so much of a kid like turpin that that can take a little bitty five yard pass and take it 90 yards for a score that's that's what, what kind of speed he has but really good offer uh and and really it's been quiet for them i mean they really haven't been making a lot of offers here lately and I think that's the fourth offer within the past week. So they're getting a little bit more activity here lately. Well, recruiting is uh, obviously not heating up at this time, and that's understandable. But we'll see how things unfold. You know, I know the coaches are working hard to connect with players in the ways that they're allowed to now. They're not able to have anybody on site. They're not able to go out and visit people, obviously. So we'll see what happens here. All right, one last thing before we get into 2009 versus 2015. I want to give a plug for a great book that I, I, I bought it on audio, and now I'm going to have to go buy a hard copy of it. It's called The Perfect Pass, and it is basically the history of the air raid offense as told through the uh, 
through basically an interview with Hal Mummy. So it's a great author that has put together this story about how football has always been a book, a, a, a game about, you know, running the ball and three yards in a cloud of dust. And there's been all these little moments where a variation has entered into a very conservative game plan and it can, it can blossom for a little bit and then it gets shut down. They actually have a lot of references to Sammy Ball and Davey uh, O'Brien and um, in the way that the frogs were throwing the, the original uh, air raid offense was TCU in the thirties, but it was not sustainable and no one wanted to embrace it. And so it tells the story about how, how mummy, uh, you know, coaching at uh, West Texas state out in Canyon, then UTEP and then um, uh, Copper's Cove and then getting the job right up the road from where I grew up in, in Mount Pleasant, Iowa at West Iowa Wesleyan college and how he began and there. He met, he took a random resume of someone that had never played football by the name of Mike Leach and paid him $12,000 a year and gave him a trailer to live in. And the two of them, as well as a, uh, a walk-on wide receiver by the name of Dana Holgerson, created the Air Raid offense. It is amazing. And so the best part of it is all of the PDFs that they have in the audiobook and its visuals in the hard book about how they created what they call the mesh play that the entire tech offense was built around this mesh play. And I, if at first I looked at it and I was like, how is this, you know, it's just a crossing pattern. And then he just walks through page after page about the whole mesh play is playing keep away with the middle linebacker and you're going to lose. You, he just has to decide how he's going to lose. And if you have a guy that can throw the ball and catch the ball, it's all but unstoppable. And it is fascinating. I'm only about uh, maybe about 40% of the way through it, but if you're bored and quarantine, the perfect pass. It is amazing book. If you love the history of college football. Sounds like a good read. It is a heck of a read. All right. Are you ready to switch gears and go to 2009 versus 2015? Jeremy Clark. Yeah. All right. You go first. We're comparing and contrasting who had the better team. Last week, we looked at 2010 versus 2014. We both agreed that I was right in 2010 was the better team. But um, (laughs) Um, today we're going to look at the 2009 team versus the 2015 team. Jeremy's taking 2009. I'm taking 2015. Jeremy, you get to kick it off. You got five points. I got five points. We'll go back and forth. What's your first point to convince me that 2009 was better than 2015? I gave the 2010 team last week some uh, – I just downplayed their schedule a little bit. You know, I, I said it wasn't as near as tough as, as 2014, but I will say going on the road, they, they opened up the season on – I believe on the road at Virginia – if I'm not – they played Virginia. I can't, I can't remember if it was on the road that year or if they were at home. But I, I know they opened up with two out of their first three opponents were ACC opponents. That's right. And, and it was it was a uh, pretty good win over Virginia. And then they went to Clemson, and they beat Clemson. Clemson, that's the year, I think, Dabo Sweeney's first or second year. And – I think it was his first full year because he took yeah. over the interim the year before. But, yeah, he was running the program when they beat him. And Clemson had a running back by the name of C.J. Spiller who pretty much everyone in the country thought was the fastest player in the in the country that year. I mean, C.J. Spiller was a phenomenal running back. I mean, he could run, he could catch, and he could just – he was a, a superb athlete. But Clemson – T.C. did a great job going into Death Valley – in a, in a monsoon is cool listening and, and to, to Bart tell the story about how they went in there and, and really surprised a lot of people. TCU. Yes. They were ranked higher than Clemson at the time, but that's a tough place to play. And they went in there and they, and they, they beat them. And that really set the tone for what they were going to do the rest of the year. Uh, that game against Utah in 09 at Amon Carter, that was just a beat down. They, they just beat the brakes off of that team. And really, if, if you look at where they were offensively, they had so many different weapons to choose from uh, as far as just spreading the ball around. And that was Justin Fuente's first year. And Justin Fuente is a very good offensive coordinator. So I think if you look at the offense, look at the, the receivers, and, and look at that defense, I think that particular team – 
could match up with the 2015 team, especially when it comes to athleticism. You know, that's a great point. They go on the road and they beat two uh, two power five teams, what we used to call BCS teams. You know, that's a, that's a pretty good point. All right, I'm going to come out of the gate as strong as possible. There will be no hyperbole in this statement. Trevon Boykin to Josh Dotson is the best combination in college football in the state of Texas in a generation. It's better than Johnny Manziel to Mike Evans. It's better than from Colt McCoy to his roommate, Jordan Shipley. And so Josh, you know, uh, Trevon Boykin to Josh Dotson in 2015 was magic. Now, I've said this before. I think I said this last week. You know, when we think about Trey, uh, you know, Trevon and Josh in 2014, I think we project back some of the 2015 magic. Obviously, there were some great plays that one had to catch against Minnesota at home in 2014. But in 2015, you just think about what Josh Dotson did in 2015 against Texas, what he did against Kansas State, what he did against Texas Tech. That combination of, of Trey's ability to hit Josh down down the um, down the field on the on the go route, there was nothing that compared to it. And I'm I'm just going to bank on that that we may never see another moment in our offense like that. And we could we could win the Big Twelve and still not see another uh, combination between quarterback and wide receiver. Trevon Boykin to Josh Dotson is the best thing that you'll ever see. That's my first point right out of the gate about why 2015 is it's better. Good point. Than I'm not going to argue with with those two. I mean, you're you're right as far especially as far as TCU goes. Yeah. All right. What do you got? Second thing. Do you is is it your turn to to have the floor first? Oh yes, it is. All right. <laughs> um, I will do that. Okay. Let's go back to uh, the difficult conversation, which is schedule. And so we're kind of going to flip the script this year, <laughs> this week from what we said last week. But didn't 20, matter last week. Yeah, yeah. Twenty fifteen played a killer schedule and had to play a ton of good teams on the road. Obviously, they go out there for that killer game against Tech with the tortilla tip. Um, Got to give shout-out to Trey Fallon for creating that phrase. But um, the 2015 schedule, the Frogs played as well as they could having to go on the road. Obviously, they lose the game to Oklahoma State, which was the first loss of the season. Let's go back inside of that loss. The Frogs stuttered and stumbled inside of the red zone over and over and over, whether they went for it on fourth and didn't get it or they kicked the field goal. But what happened early in that game, Josh Dotson has what amounted to a season-ending injury. And so you take away Josh, you got an unhealthy Colby Lissenby, you got a uh, – uh, De, uh, Devonta, you know, you got uh, Gray, uh, Deontay Gray that's not able to even see the field that season. And the only loss that was of any substance that season was at Oklahoma State. But the reason that this team was so strong, just in terms of their ability to control their, uh, uh, to win against a good schedule where they play all the good teams on the road, we know how the Big 12 schedule breaks down. I want to go back to that OU game. Without Trevon Boykin, the Frogs, and with, with Brom only playing the second half, uh, you remember Foster Sawyer played that first half at that game in, in, in Norman. You were there. I was uh, there. If Brom plays that whole game, they win. They beat a playoff team in Oklahoma. And I, you know, I will stand by Coach Patterson to this day. They made the right decision to go for two. They did not run the right play. If you, if you watch uh, – I'm going to do some revisionist history here. You watch Brom. You watch Brom when he comes up to the line in the gun on that two two point conversion that they go for. If he takes one step back and runs straight up the middle on the quarterback draw, he he dances into the end zone and they score. But they were it was the closest loss we've had to OU since. We've been blown out multiple times by Oklahoma since then. But we took OU down to the wire. We lost to Oklahoma State, who is a team that went to the Sugar Bowl without Josh Dotson, and we stumbled, we just stuttered in the um, in the red zone. Other than that, this team controlled its destiny late into the season, and they were able to, um, to, to you know to show themselves really well going on the road again and again and, and playing well. And let's go back to what we said a couple weeks ago, or what we said last week. It is apropos to the 2015 season. Trevon Boykin got a high five from Dana Holgerson in the 2015 season. So I'm going to look at their schedule as a mark about why they are better than 2009. Yeah, that's a great point. And there's not much you can counter with when the uh, stinking head coach high fives you. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> what I will say, the 2009 team. What what has been the most talked about this you know, topic we've we've seen on the board within the last three or four years as a, a particular position group for TCU? I'm gonna go with linebacker. Off, offensive line. You were close. Offensive line. Okay. Okay. Oh, when you're talking about deficiencies, I got you. Yeah, gotcha. deficiencies. Yeah. Yes. If you go offensive. back and look, if you go back and look that offensive line for TCU, do you know who the starting tackles were that year for two, the 2019? Uh, why don't you fill me in? Well, one of them is Marcus Cannon. Yes. Guess on the other one? Halabella VT by time. Say that again. The young man out of Holtham City. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry. I'm not making fun of you. I'm not judging you. Okay. Marshall Newhouse. So if you look at TCU and you look at their offensive line, can you name two tackles that have had the success that they did not only in college, but those two are still playing in the NFL right now? You know, I don't think so. I think this kind of sounds like a Mark Cohen tweet where it is, um, you know, TCU is O-line U. And, and they're, I mean, o, I mean, yeah, is, is O-line U. And it looks like um, those two tackles are a great example of that. And let me tell you two more guys, Kyle Dooley, who to this day, when you talk to a coach, is still regarded as the meanest SOB offensive lineman they've ever had, even greater than Patrick Morris. Like everyone just said, Kyle Dooley was a good kid, but when he got on the field, he was just, yeah, I don't even want to say it, but he, that's that's what kind of player they said he was. He was just a, a great, tough sucker. You weren't getting past him. They also had our boy Jake Kirkpatrick at center. And if you go go back and look at how good TCU centers have played, Joey Hunt was obviously really good. But Jake was one of the best centers they've had in the Gary Patterson era. I mean, he was a really good player. Coming from a, what, a 250-pound or 240-pound point guard he was in, in, in high school out of Tyler Lee. I mean, he wasn't getting recruited by – really anyone and TCU took a chance on him and he ended up being really good. They had your boy Jeff Olson. I know I'm you love a pitch for him is the greatest offensive lineman in the history of TCU that runs a great Twitter account. They had Blaze Foltz. I mean they they had they had a tremendous offensive line. If you go back especially if you just look at what Marcus and Marshall have been able to do and I like that 2015 team. You had Matt Bolson. Bolson, uh, what was he there already? Refresh my memory. Was he was was it, or was it was it someone else in 2015? I think that's someone else in 2015. Okay, man, I'm losing my mind with all this. It all runs together. It, it really does. But I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna say that unless it was Jerry Hughes, I would I would I would put my money on Marcus Cannon and Marshall Newhouse blocking those guys mm-hmm. on a consistent basis if they played each other. No, there's no Matt Boson in 2015. He's a 17-8. Okay, who's, who's, who's the starting defensive ends for 2015? For 2015, well, we're running triage because that's my next point, uh, one of the points that I have. This is the year that James McFarland breaks his toe on a sprinkler head in the summer. Oh, yeah. I didn't really have anyone that year. No, that was true. Oh, yeah. So so give me give me 09 all day. Yeah. Give you I'll give you 09 all day on that. Yeah. They're not get they're not TCU's 2015 defensive ends aren't getting getting past Marcus and Marshall. No, I'm with you on that. I am with you on that. You know, you mentioned Blaze Fultz. I was thinking about uh, that 2012 Oklahoma game where Trevon uh, ran in what would have been the potentially the game-tying uh, run down there on the north end zone, and he got hold, He got called for a phantom hold. That was a garbage call um, against Oklahoma in 2012, a game they should have won. So yeah. just tangent on that. All right, my next point, 2015 team, 
can we just mention the Alamo Bowl, the greatest, uh, you know, one of the most amazing bowl games in the history of college football? But I'm going to put it all on one person, and and you mentioned this last week. Jaden Oberchrome bailing us out in the Alamo Bowl is a thing of beauty. The Frogs have not had a kicker like that since then. As much as I am a big fan of Jonathan Song, I'm, I'm, I was never off of the Jonathan Song bandwagon. But 2015, you got Jaden Oberchrome. What he did in the Alamo Bowl, combined with what Kohlhausen did in the Alamo Bowl, sets this team apart in terms of distinction. You add that on top of the ability to have Power Five, uh, you know, uh, schedule and Josh and Trey. That's why I feel good about 2015 over 2009. Jaden Oberchrome and what he's able to accomplish. Then senior year was kind of a capstone for all the all the years of kicking. You know, he 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 was a freshman the year the Frogs joined the Pig 12, and what he was able to accomplish in those four seasons was uh, nothing less than remarkable. So I'm going to go with 2015, just on the right foot of Jaden. Gotcha. There was a point you made earlier with TCU going up to Oklahoma State in 2015 and the offensive uh, offense struggling. And a big part of that was because why early in the game, you said what Josh got hurt. Josh got hurt. Who else stepped up in that, on that team catching the football in, uh, in 2015, I'm going to go with, uh, Kevante Turpin, Kevante Turpin, uh, you know, one of the guys that was that doesn't get enough fanfare. His freshman year was his best year. Was Jarrison Stewart? Yeah. Um, okay. You know, he, he stepped up when Ty Slanina got hurt out in, in Lubbock. So, who else you got? I don't know. That's exactly my point. Okay. Other other than Turpin, I really I really don't know. I mean, because when when Josh went out, you're you're losing your deep threat. You're losing your jump ball threat. And it hurt the offense. I mean, everyone knew it hurt the offense. The, let me let me just let me just rattle off some names for you right now. And I mentioned this earlier with with my first point. I'm not sure collectively if there was a better group of receivers that we've seen within the last 15 years at TCU than the group I'm about to name off. You had Josh Boyce as a freshman, Ryan Christian. You can say what you want to say about him. Looks like a skater, whatever. He was still a great clutch receiver. Am I wrong? Curtis Clay, former walk-on, great clutch receiver. Okay? Scott Dawson, he was young, but he sure was fast. He was fast. Antoine Hicks, if you go back and watch that Clemson game, who makes the clutch catch late in the game to put the Frogs ahead? Hicks. Art Johnson. Anyone going to argue Bart Johnson couldn't get a third down when, when they needed it? Jeremy Curley. Jeremy Curley's another great player, still playing in the league. And finally, Jimmy Young. That's just receivers. I listed at least five guys right there, five or six guys right there, that if you go back and look at the 2009 stats, I would – I think every single one of those guys had over 25 catches. So you couldn't just single up, single up one guy. Logan Brock was a tight end. He They involved the tight end. I think 2009, he didn't have very many stats. By the time 2011 rolled around, he he, he was pretty good. Corey Fuller was a good tight end. Evan Frosch. They, they had a collective group of guys at receiver and at tight end that – in my opinion, I, I I think collectively it's still the best group that I've seen just, just for the way they were so productive. Andy spread the ball out great. A lot of them got a lot of a lot of catches. And and that's that's one thing that you saw when Justin Fuente came on board because when Mike Schultz was there, he focused really on one receiver. They wanted to get the ball to one receiver. And when Fuente got there, it was more about spreading it around and get and getting all these receivers involved. And I think that's to its own fault. I think that's probably why you saw a lot of these uh, receiver rotations because you had so many players that can make plays. And if you go back and look at that receiver group for TCU that year, it, you're you're going to be hard pressed to find a better group that had as much productivity than that group did in 2009. 
All right, I'm going to agree with you, but but in some ways you are making my case. So at some point in the 2015 season, these players missed multiple games. Colby Lissenby, Deontay Gray, Josh Dotson, Ty Slanina, Emmanuel Porter, and then, you know, obviously Boykin missed almost the entire Kansas game in 2015. He missed the entire OU game. Um, missed the Alamo Bowl, but that was for a different reason. So all of that offensive production, those five receivers that I just mentioned, they could they could have walked in and started in almost every program in the Big 12. But with them on the sidelines for big chunks of the season, they still had a top 10 finish. And so if you think you could take those five receivers that you just mentioned off of the, 29, of the 2009 team and still have a top 10 finish, then I will concede the point. But I'm not sure I agree with that. It would be tough. I mean, but but you got to look. You still had the best receiver in TCU history that was lining up through most of the season until late in the year when when I think he ended up missing the final two or three games. Well, he missed the Oklahoma State game. He 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 played a little bit in the Kansas game, which he shouldn't have. Missed the OU game and missed the Baylor game. So basically, the three best teams on their schedule, he did not play. He did not play in that game, and the Frogs still were able to get that win against Baylor go down to the very last play against Oklahoma. So Turpin had a really good game against Baylor. He I mean, did. They they really struggled on offense. Even Boykin struggled on offense yeah. um, in, in that game just, just really because of the conditions. But I, I would say if you're looking at it, – it's crazy because as we've talked about the offensive line and their deficiencies, whether where they're bad at – what have we said about the receivers over the years? It hasn't just been a two-year problem. It's been drops. No, it's been drops. Oh. It's been a three. It's It goes back to 2016. Yeah. I can't remember how good the 2015 roster was as far as drops were, but I, again, I, it, it, as far as looking at just guys that you knew if the ball was thrown their way, there was about a 95% chance they were going to catch it. And when you look at all these guys, Jeremy, Jimmy, Bart, and Ryan, Antoine, all those guys had over 20 catches. And I don't remember what the 2015 team looked like, but it's – I know that they didn't throw the ball near as much in, tw- in 2009 as they did in 2015. I, I just I just can't see it. I, I, have a, I don't have the stats in front of me, but I can pull them up thanks, thanks to the magic of Google. But it – it's just one of those positions where you just knew that they were going to be successful at with the, with those guys out there. All right. I'll, and, they, I'll, and, and they were healthy. Yep. They were healthy. They were healthy. All right. Okay, so many, Boykin I'm threw gonna, the ball 396 times and Andy threw it 323. Well, I have two more points to make. How many do you have left? Have we both gone for three? Or do you have one? Where are you at? I think I'm at three. Okay. I think it's it's me. Okay. If you look at the linebackers for 09, we we didn't talk about this. We talked about Tank. We we talked about Tank being a, a great linebacker for them. But who's the who's the guy we didn't really mention when we were discussing all this last week? I think Daryl Washington. Daryl Washington. Daryl Washington athletically may be the best linebacker I've ever seen at TCU. I mean, the the guy was a legit four four guy. Uh, obviously, his his pro career didn't work out through his own mistakes, but the guy was a phenomenal, phenomenal player uh, in college. And then you had Tank Carter right next to him, so. If you look, if you look at that linebacker core, the starting linebackers, I mean, they were tremendous. And the one play that I remember about Daryl, and me and Bart were talking about this, is C.J. Spiller actually got behind Daryl on a on a rail route out of the backfield, I think it was, and pretty much any other linebacker in the country, C.J. Spiller scores on him. And if I remember right, Daryl 
was beat on the plate, but he sprinted as fast as he could. And by the time CJ caught the ball, he dove and got a fingertip on a shoe, ended up tackling CJ. And I believe they ended up having to kick a field goal on that possession. But that's a play right there that just really stood out to me throughout his whole career because it just showed. I mean, everyone, everyone was talking about C.J. Spiller this, C.J. Spiller that, fastest guy in college football. And for Daryl Washington to make that play, it was kind of his coming out party. It was kind of like, holy cow, how, how in the world is this linebacker even keeping up with the fastest player in the country? It's incredible. And he just kept getting better every week. Every week he got better. And you combine his size and speed, and you look at the kind of player Tank Carter is with his ball awareness. We talked about it last week with 2010. Tanner Brock was a great player as a sophomore for them. But if you look at that linebacker core the year before when Daryl was a senior in 09 and Tank was a junior, I, I can't think of a better group collectively than those two right there, the, the way they performed. Uh, and I, I love 2015 team, but, man, that's a great linebacker group they had that year. When you had Tank Carter, Daryl Washington, and Jerry Hughes all on the field, that's a pretty good combination as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I'm not even mentioning Jerry Hughes yep. yet. <laughs> All right, I'm going to make my fourth point here real quick. Um, I, don't, I think I, I think you're right. I'm just going to agree with you that the defense was better. But one of the things I love about the 2015 team, that defense was held together by duct tape. And so you think about injuries or departures because you love the tractor. Mike Freeze, James McFarlane, Ranthony Tejada, uh, Izahaku – uh, Traven Howard goes from safety to linebacker, like on on during a TV timeout, and Ty Summer decides to take, you know, hey buddy, it's time for you to start. You're going to start at middle linebacker, you know, at linebacker, and the Frogs still found a way to have a top ten finish. And I know that is not exhaustive of all of the injuries. I know that is not exhaustive of all of the injuries, but it's still with all of those folks coming off the field for one way, one reason or another, the Frogs still had a top ten finish, and that's why I like the 2010 2015 defense. Yeah, I mean, there. It, it seems like every year, as long as the best defensive player for TCU every year is Gary Patterson. As long as he's on the sideline calling plays, they're always going to have a good defense. Even when they lose five or six guys like they did in 2014, they still come back and and, and they have a great defense. It's just as, as long as he's over there on the sideline, they're going to be good. Is it my turn for the fifth point or is it yours? Yeah, it's your turn. You do the fifth point, and then okay. I'll close it out because I have the okay. ultimate uh, mic drop. Oh, no. Okay. So you mentioned Jerry Hughes, I, I, and, I'll, and I'll put Jerry Hughes and Wayne Daniels as two of the top defensive ends to play for TCU, too. I mean, their defensive end group was incredible. Stanley Mapongo was a redshirt freshman. He, he was pretty good. Um, Jerry Hughes is still the best defensive end ever to, ever to play for TCU. Now, you're going to mention that you're probably going to say something about 09 was undefeated and they went to the BCS and they lost to Boise State. And I've and I've got a I've got my belief on why they lost to Boise State. If you remember you probably remember this even even as a TCU graduate, how excited were you when you found out TCU was going to a BCS game, Jeff? Super excited. Okay. Now, in all honesty, how excited were you when you found out they were playing Boise State? Exactly. Not excited. I would have exactly. there were so many other options that the I wanted to play Iowa to be totally honest, and I think Iowa went to a bowl game that I think maybe Iowa went to the Orange Bowl that year. But um yeah, I would I would did not want to play Boise State. Did not want it, to play Boise State. It, and I hate I hate lo- using this argument because you hear other you know, you used to hear, oh, Wisconsin was mad because they didn't – the fans say it because they lost to TCU in the Rose Bowl that Wisconsin really didn't care that they were there playing that because they didn't want to play TCU. They had a letdown. And, of course, J.J. Watt, uh, Watt proved them all wrong when he was qu- crying in the post game, saying how much they wanted to win that game. But it's it seems like a total lame excuse – but I, ju- I just wish that they would have had a chance to play someone other than Boise State, someone that was 
in a similar position they were. Because when Boise State made it to the BCS, they got I think they got to play Oklahoma. And, man, how good. And I still remember that game like it was yesterday when they played Oklahoma and beat them in the bowl game. I think it was the Fiesta Bowl, matter of fact. But Boise State was no slouch that year. They had Kellen Moore. Kellen Moore was a really good quarterback. Uh, and, and really, Kellen Moore almost ruined the season for him the next year when he completed that long pass to – uh, I can't remember the receiver's name, and against Nevada before the Boise State kicker started crapping the bed and missing all kinds of field goal attempts. But I, I, I just honestly think that TCU was really excited to get out and, and play in a BCS game. But I, and I'll have to ask a former player during that during that era if there was any kind of thought that they were kind of let down that they had to play Boise State instead of someone kind of a bigger name because. They were they were really wanting to prove who they were that year. Um, they did it against Virginia. They obviously did it against Clemson. They did it on national stage against Utah at home. But I really feel that if they would have played someone with a bigger name, like the 2010 team had a chance to do against Wisconsin, you probably would have seen a different outcome. Andy didn't play a great game against Boise, and that's one of the reasons why he played so well the next season. He, he had a lot to – to prove and, and prove doubters wrong. But I, I really think that that 09 team, it, it, I'll go to my grave saying this. I think if they had a chance to play a bigger school, a true blue blood, that you probably would have seen an undefeated TCU team in 2009 as well. You know, one of the great, uh, one of the great questions for the ages is what, if the Big 12 office doesn't put one second back on the clock oh, for kick the field goal. Oh, you know, two things I remember about that. One is there are multiple people who obsess over the old BCS polls that said TCU would have been number two ahead of, of Cincinnati. Yes. And, and so multiple people that I trust, not just message board fans, um, but I also remember reading an interview with Coach Patterson where he said when they put the second back on the clock and they went and kicked the field goal that he just left the house and went out and walked for an hour and didn't talk to anybody. So I took that as, you know, I, I don't want to put this on him because that's going to be – that's not what I'm saying. He was clearly – he knew how close they were to actually playing Alabama in the Rose Bowl for the national championship. Absolutely. They were that close to playing Alabama for the championship, and uh, there's no way to avoid a letdown. I don't care that it was that close, man. I, I don't know if they should have put the half a second back on the clock, but I know no. that the they came dead, no and then way. they put the second back on the clock. And Mac Brown's clapping on the sidelines. So, oh, yeah. can I tell a story about that real quick? I want to hear it. I, I, I think all you guys know that I was I was working out of state. I was up in Nebraska. And I liked Nebraska, but Nebraska because there was a lot of there was a lot of people that were just really nice people, and I became friends with a lot of them. Uh, and they hated Texas. Nebraska fans, for what it's worth, they don't like Texas. A lot of them hate Texas. I don't know why. Maybe because the Big Eight back in those days. I, I don't know, but they just they just don't like it. And I was over at uh, some friends' houses, and, and we were watching the game, and. They put it, it was funny. We we're watching Sue throw Colt McCoy like a rag doll. I mean, there was literally one time he threw him and McCoy did a midair helicopter. And we're all celebrating. We're in and I'm excited and they're and they're excited for me because they know if Nebraska wins that TCU's gonna have a shot to play for a national championship. And when they put that one second back on the clock, uh, I, I, I can't I can't tell you how mad I was that that happened. And then they end up winning. And then my best friend, God love him, he's a Texas fan. He calls me, and and I think I probably mf'd him about ten times. I saw, I'm sorry, Pastor, you'll have to forgive me. But I was so I've never, I was I've never so heard mad. these words. I've never heard I, these. Words. I was so mad after that game. <laughs> he and I didn't talk for about two weeks after that because he was he was he was mad and he was trying to rub it in my face that. Big old Texas is keeping TCU out of a national championship. And it was just, oh, man, it, I, I still remember to this day exactly where I was, people I was with, watching it 
in a basement, a, a basement that was made into like a gigantic game room. It's a pretty cool setup. Nebraska has these basements and us folks down here in Texas don't get that kind of thing, but it was, it was uh, devastating. I still remember it, man. Bring back some old memories. Well, I apologize for that. All right. So to in to, to round out this argument and in this conversation, 2015 is a better season and a better team than 2009 because in the last game of the regular season, they sent Art Riles out of Fort Worth in the cold, in the rain, with a loss, and let it be noted here in the year of our Lord that Gary Patterson has eternal scoreboard over Art Briles, who is a disgraced, fired coach from Baylor University. Is there is there anything you can say to top that? I think no. there is no. <laughs> the funniest part about that is we were talking about it on the on the board today, and uh, someone was talking about that play, and me and Mark Cohen were standing next next to each other, and Jeremiah's down there, and you know people. They hate on Mark for whatever because the cheese at bow. He he, man, he is such a nice guy. He, he is awesome to me. We we're friends. He's he started at TCU the same time I started covering. But it's funny standing next to him because we're we're right there on the yard line where it happens, and Julius just darts in and tags him, and and Mark immediately runs on the field. I mean, he's celebrating, but he's also got to find Coach Patterson so they can do whatever media or whatever. But if you watch that that TV uh, replay. Bryles cannot find Patterson anywhere. And then you get Nick Orr going up to, to Bryles, talking a little oh, bit man. of boys. <laughs> I know we're not supposed to say it, but that was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't I don't think Bryles ever I don't think I don't think Coach Patterson and Bryles ever talked after that game. I I never saw him on the field talking to and, and me and Jeremiah hung out on the field for a while because it was such a crazy game. It was cold, it was rainy, but I, I'll give you that point, Jeff, because I don't. I don't think that's that, that's one of my my favorite moments to be a part of and, and see that up close, just from the sideline. And I know Daniel's going to agree with you. That's that's the that's the nail hitting the hammer right there. You you just you just ended it for me for the '09 team because any any time you can put disgrace on Art Bryles and Baylor, Daniel's going to side with you. That's the night that I met Daniel finally after we've been doing the podcast for a year. Daniel, you remember running into each other on the field? Yes, I was a thirty-year-old man or thirty-eight-year-old man running onto the field. Oh uh, well, I was thirty, whatever, <laughs> running onto the field, and uh, and I was yeah, we just it was right in front of the band where the band usually is, and yeah, I remember that. I met Daniel for the first time at one of the spring games, and after I put my neck back in line from looking up a total foot uh, because Daniel's <laughs> like six foot five or six, six, it seems like, but Daniel's a nice old guy. I like old Daniel. <laughs> you talk about him like he's your dog. <laughs> he is my dog, man. He's my, he's, my nice old, he's a nice old he's guy. My dog. Uh, all right. Well, we have gone an hour, Jeremy. So you you got Daniel's got, Daniel's got to decide. Oh yeah, okay, Daniel, you get to make the you you get to be the the mediator of all this. Do you want to go with 2009 or 2015? Who's the better team? I was 2009 all the way until you brought it up about Art Bryles and all the memories came back and that was probably the greatest victory of all time. So, got to go with 2015 this time. We got to go with 2015. Yeah, I love that Bryles and Patterson couldn't meet up. And then when he was asked about it at the press conference, Gary's like, "I wish I could have seen him. I would have loved to have seen him." Well, <laughs> I didn't see him. I tried to go talk to him, but he was nowhere to be found. Oh, uh, I was looking for Coach Kaz, the strength coach. I couldn't find him. <laughs> uh. You know, all I remember about that game was I was sitting in the stands with my friend Guido. That's his actual name. Shout out to him. He's listening to the podcast. And there was a guy from Baylor that was about two rows behind us. There were like 82 people in the stadium at that time. And he was drunk and he was going crazy. 
And I remember saying, and it, when we got to overtime, I was like, Guido, we're going, we got to push down here because if we lose, I don't want to hear it. And if I win, I'm not going to keep my mouth shut. So let's just go down this way. So that was, uh, that's how we ended up pre- pressing down through the student section. And then we won. We just ran onto the field with everybody else. So, you know, the other great thing about that game was that entire week, no one really knew if Travon was going to play or not because it was, it was, kept so quiet whether he was going to play and, and no one really knew coach Patterson wasn't saying anything. And then the football department, the, the, the people who make the highlight videos, they, they did the TCU Baylor highlight. And then at the very end of that highlight, they show Boykin clips. And that was basically TCU announcing that he was going to be playing that week. It never came out. Uh, on a statement from Coach Patterson, anything else that came out on that particular highlight video. And it's still out there. Um, but it was really cool because you see all these different highlights. They're showing they're showing highlight clips of uh, Foster. They're showing highlight clips of Bram. And then at the very end of this, this pump-up video, they show clips of Trevon. And basically, they had some song in the background saying the king. And uh, that's how everyone found out he was going to be playing. Because I had Baylor guys reaching out to me all week. Hey, do you know if Boykin's going to be playing? Hey, do you know if Boykin? I, I have no idea, guys. I have no clue. Sorry you can't tell your fans. I, I really don't have a clue if he's going to be playing or not. Yeah, I remember. I think that would have been uh, Caden Hayde, right? Is that right? What was the guy's name that ran the video department back then? Yeah, that was him. Yeah. Yeah. Hyde. Yeah. Hyde. yeah. He did a great job. And I remember that. I remember that video for the, for the Baylor game when it, at the very end, it comes on with boy King and um, that was very, very well done. So, all right, well, I'm going to break a promise. We've gone over an hour here. So uh, the next podcast, which is um, going to be next week, uh, hopefully for those of you that are late adapters, you will go watch Tiger King. If you have not watched Tiger King, you need to do it. If you are working from home, my suggestion would be to do what I did, which is work really hard for three hours, then watch an episode. Work a couple of hours, watch an episode. Tiger King, um, I'm kind of a, for those of you that are theological nerds, I'm kind of a Calvinist. I believe in total depravity of humanity, that deep at our core, we're just rotten people. If you don't believe that, go watch Tiger King. It's going to prove it to you. It's going to oh, prove gosh. it to you. One, that the world is fallen and broken, and two, there ain't enough money in the world to make me move to Oklahoma. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> there is so we can't even begin to do justice to that. So next week we'll do a shorter version of uh, I think we're going to do 2008 versus 2017 because those were all those were both two lost regular season teams, and then we're going to get into Tiger King. And we we could we might go on for an hour and a half about the about about Carol about jo, uh, you know Joe uh, the, Joe is exotic uh, mayor mayor or gubernatorial candidate in the state of Oklahoma, but there's so much to talk about in that. So what is waiting until next week? We we can we'll actually go out and ask uh, we'll put something on the board asking what they're what they're binging, and we might because someone mentioned Ozarks, which I binged. Watch that whole thing, season. Three. Oh, did you get through all the way through? I I just wrapped oh, yeah. it up tonight. Oh my gosh, that last scene! Oh my gosh! Oh, wow. I jumped off my couch. Did not. Hey, that was like the last the last scene in uh, the first season. Yeah, I mean, it, it was just so shocking. Like I, yeah. I didn't I didn't see that coming at all. But I yeah, we'll, we'll we'll put it out there. We'll 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 ask people what they've binge watched, and we'll talk a little bit about it. Some of these shows we've watched, some of them we haven't. But it's man, it's just crazy because a lot of us are all doing the same thing we're watching tv we're like you said jeff we're doing work work a couple hours then then we relax work a couple hours and it's you've you've got to get this routine going and it's yeah. it's like we talked at, about at the beginning of the show i'm getting a routine with my son because he's like a labrador that's that's my nickname for him he's a labrador he wants attention constantly do work okay bud i'll watch you go walk okay I got to work for a few hours. Okay, you want to ride your four wheeler? I'll watch you go ride your four wheeler. Do all this, but everyone's watching these shows. I know everyone that's listening right now. They've got a show in mind that they've binged watch, and we're going to talk about it. All right, we'll talk about that. We'll definitely get into uh, Tiger King. We'll maybe t- uh, dip our toe into Ozark because man, that's a good show. Um, 
I do want to go on the record. Have you ever seen Joe Exotic and Mike Gundy in the same place at the same time? <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> you know, all of those pictures where he's out snake hunting, where do you think he's at? Oh. Do you, don't you think he's in Winniewood, Oklahoma? You know, the the, the bad the, the bad uh, meme I've seen so far is the John Finley. You know, the, the one that's missing a lot of teeth. Yes. <laughs> Someone made a, made a meme that showed his two teeth together. It said, good, good it said something like, uh, too close. And then it showed the gap with the teeth. It said social distancing. <laughs> well, the one I saw was, it was Joe, and he had the full mullet going, and he was dancing in front of a tiger cage, and it said, I'm telling my kids this is Mike Gundy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, someone photoshopped his head. It was one of those bedlam games where it's cold, it's like nine below, and he's getting blown out, and there's Gundy, and they put the Joe Exotic face <laughs> on Gundy getting blown out. Uh, oh man (laughs) you know we talk about how we need to have a meetup you know obviously our big our big meetup this uh but we're talking about in june is off the table right now what we should do is do a meetup next summer in thackerville at the zoo (laughs) (laughs) just get you know 40 of us we can go you know get go get the buffet for 3.99 at the thackerville casino and then go take a tour at the zoo <laughs> I'll pass on that one. I'm sure that guy and his nanny is going to get that place up oh, on his Yeah. <laughs> Golly. That dude might be the creepiest of them all. Oh my gosh. That is so creepy. Beyond creepy. Yeah. Beyond creepy. So you're not going to have anything left to talk about. Oh, uh, <laughs> I know. I know. We're going to package all, all right. this. We're going to wrap it up. All right. That's, I will that's bring the show to the end here. All right. I want to thank everybody for listening to the Frogcast. If you made it this far, you are going to get a crown in glory. Thank you so much for listening to the Frogcast. If you haven't yet, go give us a rating and review on iTunes. We'd appreciate you doing that. Subscribe. We want people that love TCU football to know more about our show and give them a chance to follow us. So until the next time that we get together, for Jeremy Clark and for Daniel Southern, I'm Jeff Mitchell. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Tiger Camp.